Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome, everyone, to the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Films discussion. This is episode number 33 for May 2014. My name is Scott, and I'm the manservant here at Down Place. The lords of the manor, Derek and Casey, will be along straight away. On today's episode, the Down Placers are going to take a look at the 1962 Hammer film Night Creatures. This film is based upon the Dr. Sin novels of Russell Thorndike. These same novels were used as a basis for Dr. Sin alias the Scarecrow, a 1962 Disney production. Now Derek and Casey joined my wife and I on episode number 154 of my home podcast, the Disney Indiana podcast, to talk about that Disney film. Now to continue this podcast crossover... Tracy joins us here on Down Place to talk about Night Creatures and compare and contrast the two films. Now, the star of Night Creatures is the patron saint of 1951 Down Place, Sir Peter Cushing. He plays the good Reverend Dr. Bliss, who is also the pirate Captain Clegg. Also on screen is the man who has appeared in more Hammer films than anyone else, Michael Ripper as Mr. Mips. Oliver Reed, another actor who has played in multiple films for Hammer, is Harry Cobtree. Rounding out the main cast is Patrick Allen as Captain Collier and Yvonne Romaine as Imogene, a woman with a mysterious past. Now, after this quick break, we'll head off to the southern coast of England where there's a legend people tell of days long ago when the great scarecrow would ride from the jaws of hell. Hello, folks. This is Scott from the 1951 Downplace podcast. And are you tired of waking up at the crack of dawn to dig in your yard for those elusive red wigglers? Tired of paying those outrageous prices for worms at those mom and pop stands near the lake? Well, friends, I have just the place for you. Captain Clegg's Night Creatures, your discount home for all your bait and tackle needs. We buy in bulk from only the finest worms, leeches, grubs, dough balls, and mealworms. And we pass that savings on to you. This month down at Captain Clegg's, we feature the 1951 downplay special of 30 iridescent wigglers so you can finally reel in that elusive striper or bass down in the marsh. Just mention that you heard this ad on 1951 downplace and you'll receive 10 extra wigglers. That's Captain Clegg's Night Creatures, your home for all your bait and tackle needs. Located on the dock, just a fly cast from Drax Delicatessen. That's Captain Clegg's Night Creatures, a proud sponsor of the 1951 Downplace Podcast. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. 
Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. Dr. The Disney Bunsen Indiana Podcast. Syndrome. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. How did he die, man? Dr. Pepper signed the certificate natural causes, but I should have thought from the look of the poor fellow that he died of fright. This is a frightened village. Here, it is wiser to close your ears to a scream in the night. In this place, even familiar things take on an odd and terrifying significance. A funeral moves under the cloak of night. But no one inquires who has died, nor why the corpses are dispatched with such desperate haste. Starring Peter Cushing as the parson who knew every secret of the night creatures. Yvonne Romaine and Oliver Reed as two young people who loved in the shadow of terror. I've always been respectful to you, haven't I? But I've had to keep my real feelings to myself until now. Patrick Allen as the courageous Captain Collier who sailed the seven seas in search of danger and found it in The Night Creatures. So in 1961, Hammer released the pirate film called The Pirates of Blood River. And a few weeks after that movie wrapped, pretty much the same crew dove into a movie that we now know here in the States as Night Creatures. It was released as Captain Clegg over in the UK. And that's what we're talking about here on this episode of 1951 Down Place. With, I'm Derek, and I've got Casey here with us as well. Casey Criswell, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you, Derek? 
I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, especially since this is our special crossover episode with Disney Indiana. Now, listeners know that our co-host, Scott Morris, is one of the high muckety-mucks over at Disney Indiana. We've got him on the line, along with his co-host of Disney Indiana, Tracy, his wife. How are you guys doing? We're doing well this morning. Thanks for having us on the show. And Scott? (laughs) Sorry, I got the giggles all of a sudden. That's so unlike me. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, Scott, whatever time you're listening to this. Scott's not used to us having female guests in the uh, 1951 down place offices. And seeing as <laughs> I can see her. <laughs> There's a girl. There's a girl in here. I don't know what to do. Well, just because I'm dressed like Imogene shouldn't mean anything. To, to be clear, listeners, 1951 does not discriminate. We really, really like women, especially in the Hammer films. All right, well, we are crossing over with Disney Indiana. This episode comes out before or after the Dr. Sin episode, guys? This will come out uh, after. Uh, on uh, Disney Indiana this past uh, weekend, we released um, an episode where we covered Dr. Sin, a- alias the Scarecrow, where Derek and Casey joined us over at Disney Indiana, and you can find that at DisneyIndiana.com. Now, Disney Indiana, as you can imagine, is... It's a Disney show. It's all ages. It's family friendly. But if any listeners came over from Disney Indiana to 1951 Down Place, we talk about horror movies and movies with women with heaving bosoms and cleavage. And it's just not very safe for little mouse ears, I think is probably the best way to put it. So heads up, any parents who are thinking about sharing this with their kids. Because Scott is filthy over here. (laughs) I've got to release it somewhere. i got to be all nice and... And clean and squeaky clean on Disney Indiana. This gives me an outlet for all of my curse words. Like shucks mm. and darn it. And booger. Dag nabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I am offended, sir. <laughs> so night creatures are Captain Clegg. You know, here on 1951 Down Place, we kind of established at the very, very beginning of the show that we're going to refer to these titles by their American title, their American release titles, because, well, we're Americans. Although most of, at least the earlier Hammer stuff, did have multiple titles when it was released in the States. It was one thing when it was released in their native England. It was something else. Uh, in this episode, I suspect we're going to bounce back and forth between Clegg and Night Creatures. It's the same film. came out in 1962 uh, from Hammer. It was brought to Hammer's table by the producer John Temple Smith. He's the one who brought these novels, these Thorndike novels. The name of the author was Thorndike. I forget his first name. Well, before we get into uh, Richard Thorndike's novels, can we talk a little bit about the Night Creature's name and where that was supposed to go? Well, I was going to get there, but yeah, let's hit it, because I think that's fascinating. Casey, do you know the story? I do not. Oh, it's a good one. Fascinate me. This is an audio show. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pantomiming over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Casey, are you familiar with I Am Legend? I am. (laughs) There you go. Now you know the story. Oh, nice. At one point, Hammer was going to make a film version of I Am Legend. Uh, they had bought the rights from Richard Matheson, and Night Creatures was going to be the title and, that they used. And Richard Matheson also uh, wrote a treatment for it for Hammer. But Hammer hated to waste anything, even if it came down to a two-word title. So the, word well, Night, or the title of Night Creatures ended up being used for this film. They actually had promised their U.S. distributor that they were coming out with a film called Night Creatures for the U.S., and when the um, I Am Legend kind of fell through, they had this title. They'd already promised it to a U.S. distribution team. So Captain Clegg became Night Creatures over here. And quite frankly, I would love to see what Hammer would have done with I Am Legend. Oh, That's what yeah. I was thinking. Oh, man, that'd be amazing. Peter Cushing doing that? 
Oh boy. I mean, I love Cushing, but I wonder if Lee would be better in that role. You know, True. I kind of think Christopher Lee would be better as the Neville character. No offense, Peter. You know, if you're listening. And no offense, Vincent Price, who did an awesome job with it as well. Or Charlton Heston. Well, but then or Will Smith, right? <laughs> or Charlton Heston. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, John Temple Smith was a big fan of the novels. Apparently, they were very successful, at least for a, uh, a time over in the UK. And there were a total of eight of them, I believe. Tracy, you know a little bit more about the novels than I do, I think. Uh, I've read the first one. And, and we're back to the Thorndike novels. Yeah, by we're the way. back to the Russell Thorndike novels. And I read through the first one. Uh, as we said on the Disney Indiana podcast, their version of the story was actually based on a later adaptation of the material, whereas the Hammer material seems to be much more based on the original Russell Thorndike novel, Dr. Sin, which came it's out a- in 19, either 1915 or 1917. It's a little bit more complicated than that, actually. The Hammer film version seems to be more inspired by the very first film adaptation back in the 30s. And the reason for that is because they were afraid of Disney. And Disney may or may not have had all the rights to the books to begin with at the point, at that point. They kind of came to an agreement. There was a little mm-hmm. bit of back and forth. And Disney pretty much said, okay, you can't use the name Dr. Sin. You can't use the title and make sure your version's different enough from ours that no one really gets confused. So that was one thing I noticed as we were watching. It's like certain elements from the original book, like the other two characters that went along with the Scarecrow, weren't used in Captain Clegg. A couple other little things. Captain Clegg brought in the Imogene character, whereas that was ignored in the Disney material. So I think they're, they actually, Disney kind of went along and said, okay, you can make this, just make it different. I was reading uh, Little Shop of Horrors magazine, issue number 17, has a great feature spread on night creatures. And they seem to, or the writer of this article, never really names the names, but keeps referring to a girl in production who seemed to not have it all worked out, straightened out, who had what rights. Hmm. At one point, Hammer thought they had the rights to the novels themselves, but Disney had it. And you didn't want to mess with the mouse. And this girl in production said they had the rights, but maybe Disney did too. And it was really kind of foggy at the very beginning. But yeah, as Tracy said, they did eventually come down to an agreement. And I find it ironic that Disney's version, the character is actually named Sin, whereas in Hammer's version, the character's name is Bliss. I, <laughs> you would not assume that, I think, just knowing the history of Disney and Hammer. And the storylines, they are... While similar themes are used, they are quite different. You know, enough that I don't think you could uh, mistake one film for the other. Not at all, yeah. Well, as as Disney was prone to do, it's very, uh, and this is no offense to Disney or Disney fans, it's a very black and white kind of good versus evil Robin Hood-like type story, whereas the Hammer version has a few more shades going on, or, or shades used when painting the characters, that sort of thing. Having said that, there is one scene from Dr. Sin that still surprises me, that whole uh, false hanging scene. Oh, yeah. Which seems it would be better in a Hammer production than a Disney production. Oh, yeah. We talked about that when we were on your show, talking about that. That whole sequence was, wow, pretty impressive. We'll kind of touch a little bit on, we may touch a little bit on Dr. Sin, but uh, as we said, that's over on Disney Indiana. This episode, we're going to feature more on Captain Clegg and Night Creatures. Which is the same film. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so John Temple Smith brings the movie to Hammer. They eventually get it, get it going. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were attached at one point. Obviously, Lee didn't make the set. I don't know what happened there, why he wasn't involved. Uh, but Cushing was actually a fan of the source material to begin with. So he was a lock. I mean, he was on board from the beginning. In fact, there are reports and I've seen photos of various scripts that he himself had written, different versions of the Captain Clegg story. Because he the, liked it so much. All the way up to the early 70s. Yeah. yeah, Not necessarily as sequels, per se, but maybe like a different adaptation. Which, you know, if you know the source material, my understanding is that the first novel is very definitive in that, spoiler alert, Clegg dies. Yes. And all the other novels are like prequels. Correct. Other adventures before his death. And the last one was actually co-written by two, by Thorndike, and then somebody else, because Thorndike had passed away in the middle of it. Now, there are some reports that Thorndike may have seen this film, but nobody really knows what he thought of it, so we don't really have that to go to. Because he didn't tweet about it on Twitter. Exactly, yeah. I mean, his Facebook page got deleted, so. Well, as, as for further adventures, I would love to see Captain Clegg on the high seas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Peter Cushing himself said he always wanted to play a pirate and i think seeing him in a pirate movie would be amazing and he'd done a couple but actually seeing him on the high seas doing the errol flynn thing would be just fantastic it depends at what point in his career it would have to be fairly yeah. early i think yeah 50s 60s i'm on board maybe in the 70s he can play uh flynn's dad or something <laughs> now production of this movie took place mostly at bray studios um now i have not i mean i have i have a little tidbit about the production at Bray that actually might mean something to us here, specifically here at 1951 Down Place. I'll get to that at the end. It was a pretty short shoot. Oliver Reed is one of the lead characters in it, and it's the first time that he had worked with Peter Cushing. Uh, Cushing gave him some advice and something that Oliver Reed kind of held on to through the rest of his career. He was very excited to be in this movie himself. He really enjoyed it, enjoyed the experience that normally he got to play bad eggs, but in Night Creatures, he got to play a good one. Oh, one one thing I wanted to say real quick about being filmed at Bray Studios, most people that have listened to our podcast for any length of time know that I'm still learning uh, about Hammer. I never watched a whole lot of Hammer films growing up. Now, after a couple of years of doing this, I start noticing uh, things that I've seen in other films. And there's a scene in Night Creatures where the Navy men march into the town for the first time. And I'm look looking at that scene and I'm like, that's the bar from... Frankenstein creates woman that they go into yep. from the outside. Part of the church set as well uh, appeared in The Evil of Frankenstein. So they were shooting a lot at the same property, using a lot of the same locations, just kind of dressing it a little differently, which, you know, if you have a studio, if you have a place as cool as Bray Studios, I'd be doing that all the time. You're talking about, uh, let's see, we also have Patrick Allen in the film as Captain Collier. I love Patrick Allen. I think he's completely underrated by our generation when it comes to the film that's, that he'd done. I love his chemistry with Peter Cushing. He'd done a handful of films, or at least one other film with Cushing that I really like. The name is escaping me, however, because I liked it so much. <laughs> Night of the Big Heat. Is a film that they were in together, and I love that movie. It's also known as Island of the Burning Damned from 1967. But yeah, I love Patrick Allen and Peter Cushing's chemistry together. And then Tracy also mentioned uh, Imogene. She's our female lead, because you can't have a hammer film without some cleavage, right? Not a good right. one, anyway. She's yeah, played her, by Yvonne Romain. Yeah, her character was from the original source material. Although she oh. has a little bit bigger role in the book than she does in the film. I was going to ask you about that. Now, Tracy, you're the... Casey um, and I have not read the novel. Is that right, Casey? Right. And Scott, have you looked at it at all? Not enough pictures for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's interesting that a machine actually turns up in the novel. I, if anything, her character felt like the ad, the addition, the add-on. No, not at all. Hmm. Now, does she have the same relationship uh, with the other characters that she has in this film? Yes. Wow. Cool. Well, she had also been in The Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed the year before. And her relationship with Oliver Reed in that film is much different than what it is in Night Creatures. Not to spoil it too much for anybody who hasn't seen Curse of the Werewolf, but uh, she's Oliver Reed's mom in that one. And they're lovers in this one? Yeah. Wow. Ew. A little awkward for the actors, I imagine. Well, sort <laughs> of. They, they don't have a lot of screen time together as mother, son, in Curse of the Werewolf, which we'll get to at some point here on the show, I'm sure. I, I'm up for it because I'm a fan of Oliver Reed. Oh, he's great. I'm, I'm sorry, surprised you haven't mentioned uh, your hero. I was getting there, but I feel like I've been kind of dominating the conversation. But since you brought it up. <laughs> and, and my favorite actor in this film. Isn't he fantastic? He is. Michael Ripper is awesome in this film. Michael Ripper is amazing. And I have a quote from him about his produ- his participation in the film. This is from his biography, Michael Ripper Unmasked. And to lead up to this, this was the first time that he had an opportunity to actually act with Peter Cushing. They may have been in other films together, but this is the first time he really had an opportunity to interact with him on screen. I had a good part in that opposite Peter. It was the only time we both worked together at Hammer. I didn't get to know him that well. He was a very quiet man. But like Christopher Lee, a brilliant actor, perfectionist, and a very important part of Hammer Films, I'm sure without them both, the company would not have become as successful as it did. Martin Benson actually had this to say about Michael Ripper in the film. Martin Benson played Mr. Rash in the movie. I remember Michael as a true professional and a companionable colleague. I think Michael Ripper would be cool to just hang out with, man. Well, he's the source of a lot of the humor in this film. Oh, yeah. He plays uh, uh, Jeremiah Mipps, who is the town coffin maker and i love there's a scene early on where the navy guys are going marching off into the to the marsh and michael ripper jeremiah mipps says something like you know if you guys keep going where you're going my business is going to pick up he was easily my favorite part of this film he's fantastic no i love him this is he gets an opportunity to really do his thing so many times he's a character actor he's in the movie for a few minutes that's it he was really integral to a lot of things happening in this story and i loved him in it Quite honestly, one of my favorite parts of his is, you know, and I don't know how far we're going to go in the actual story, but at the very end, what he does at the very end and the look on his face when something traumatic happens, he sells that. Oh, yeah. And it's so good. Yeah, easily my favorite part of this film. Now, if we start talking about other cast members, I suspect Scott's going to have his, uh, are, his are, James Bond moment. Are we ready to, to jump into uh, to the James Bond connections? Uh-oh. Well, I've actually, one of them has actually already been mentioned, but let's start with Milton Reed. Milton Reed played the mulatto in Night Creatures. Uh, He actually appears in two James Bond films. He first shows up in 1962 as one of Dr. No's bodyguards, and he was dispatched pretty easily in that film. He uh, actually returns to the James Bond universe in 1977 in The Spy Who Loved Me as Sandor. Sandor's an assassin who partners with Jaws in the film in tracking down uh, Carl Stromberg's submarine tracking technology. Bond uh, actually gets into a fight with Sandor on the top of a, a building in Egypt where Bond ends up throwing Sandor off the roof. Milton Reed also has a connection to the James Bond film Goldfinger from 1964. Reed challenged the great Togo, a.k.a. Harold Sanka, to a wrestling contest to decide who would play Oddjob in Goldfinger. 
Now, the producers of Goldfinger pointed out that Reed already played a henchman in Dr. No and that this contest was not needed and gave the role to Sanka. I was going to say, just to be clear, you said Togo and not Torgo, right? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking well, of Goldfinger... Well, before uh, you get off Milton Reed, okay. do you want to mention that he was also in Casino Royale? Do you consider the uh, the 60s version of Casino Royale in the James Bond canon? Yes. <laughs> then you can mention it. <laughs> he was in Casino Royale. Moving on. <laughs> It's just as canon as Never Say Never Again, as far as I'm concerned. It's got a James Bond character. It's canon. Hey, this show, this podcast is canon as much as James Bond gets mentioned. There's lots of James Bonds in the original Casino Royale, not just one. <laughs> exactly. So it's like six times as much. Let's go back to a good James Bond film in Goldfinger, okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> Now, um, my next connection um, happens to be with that film. In Night Creatures, the role of Mr. Rash is played by Martin Benson. In in Goldfinger, Benson plays the American gangster Solo, who helps Goldfinger smuggle a laser into the country. Now, at one point point in Goldfinger, Benson's Solo doesn't want any part of Goldfinger's Operation Grand Slam and wants out with his money. So Goldfinger puts $1 million in gold in the trunk of his car and tells Oddjob to drive the car with Solo in it to the airport. After leaving Goldfinger's Kentucky estate, Oddjob kills Solo in the car and takes the car to a junkyard where it's crushed into a cube, which is returned back to the estate so they can take the gold out of the car. So that's my James Bond connections. But since this is a crossover with Disney Indiana... Oh, Mike, you need an excuse. (laughs) We did manage to find a couple of Disney connections with this film as well. Uh, Going back to Milton Reed, he also appears in a Disney film, the 1960 Disney classic Swiss Family Robinson, where he played a big pirate in the scene where the pirates are attacking the Robinson's Island. Uh, You mentioned Patrick Allen earlier, Derek. Captain Collier in The Night Creatures. He was also Inspector Cook in the 1974 Disney TV movie, Diamonds on Wheels. And then we have David Lodge, who played the Navy Bosun. He was a reporter's voice on the Disney afternoon TV series Darkwing Duck in the episode A Duck by Any Other Name, 1992. He looks like he did a lot of voice work in his later years. He's got, he's got an awesome voice. Yes, yes, he does. Uh, we also have Jack McGowan, who played the frightened man in Night Creatures. He was uh, Phaedric Ogue in Darby O'Gill and the Little People in 1959. Um, going back to Michael Ripper, I learned today that there's uh, a connection between Michael Ripper and Disney. He plays a townsperson in 1962's The Prince and the Pauper, The Pauper King for Disney. And we're going to go with the obvious connection here with Night Creatures and Disney, the, the extended Disney verse, shall we say, and that would be Reverend Dr. Bliss, Captain Clegg himself. Peter Cushing, of course, played Grand Moff Tarkin. Oh, come on. Holding... That's too easy. Uh. <laughs> but how could we leave that out? <laughs> it's a given, isn't it? So that's your Bond and Disney connections for Night Creatures. Casey, you and I have to find another franchise to obsess over so we can start doing that, too. It just sounds like fun. <laughs> it does sound like fun. <laughs> I don't know what we choose, though. I don't know either that we don't already talk about on our other podcast enough. All right, so it was a short production. Uh, didn't take very long to make the movie. Most of it was shot around Bray. Makes it pretty easy to do so. 
I believe it was, uh, let's see, I'm seeing some reports here that it was a six-week shoot, so a month and a half or so, directed by Peter Graham Scott. I don't know a heck of a lot about him, uh, although I do see his name in conjunction with John Temple Smith in a few places. Scored by Don Davis, or excuse me, Don Banks. Don Davis did Matrix, totally different film. (laughs) Wow, it is a different film. (laughs) Yeah. Scored by Don Banks, who had done some other, or will do some other Hammer work as well. Bernard Robinson was brought in to do production design, and I think that shows. And you know what? I'll go ahead and mention it now. It's going to hold off. There are a couple shots in the movie, a couple scenes where you can hear a dog barking in the background. Did did you guys hear a dog at all? I think I did, actually. Uh, Not that I noticed. Well, there's a dog barking, trust me. All right, so this is from a magazine called Dark Terrors Number 12. When Hammer first moved into Down Place and renamed it Bray Studios... There's our connection to what we do here. The then occupiers, the Davies family, moved into a separate wing of the house. With filming constantly taking place on his doorstep, George Davies occasionally wandered onto the sets and offered his services as a camera assistant. Unfortunately, his dog, Curly, followed him in interrupted scenes on numerous films with her barking. While being unsuitable for an atmospheric scene outside Castle Dracula, Curly can be heard barking in several scenes shot on the Bray lot in Captain Clegg. So I thought it was kind of cool that Down Place had a dog that managed to be heard in one of the films, at least. I say our so, version of uh, uh, Down Place. I know Derek's got cats. I think Casey's got a dog. Yep. And cats. And we just have a dog, so we're holding that tradition up. <laughs> there you go. And I don't think... Have your dogs been heard at her on the show? I don't know if Coda's been heard on, on the well show. Oh, oh, he's been heard, but I've edited him out in the last episode. He was heard many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, we start... Um, actually out at sea in 1776, where uh, we're aboard Captain Clegg's ship, even though we don't actually see him. And uh, we have uh, Tor Johnson is uh, being held captive. That would be Milton Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Am I the only one that didn't see him as Tor Johnson? He would have made a great Tor Johnson. Especially what <laughs> happens to him. <laughs> Anyway, it's uh, the mulatto character, which I don't think he's ever actually given a, a full, proper name. But he's on pirate trial because he sexually attacked Captain Clegg's wife and ended up killing her. And as punishment, he has his tongue cut out, his ears mutilated, and then he's left to die with no provisions on an island with a sign there saying, this is what happens to you if you cross Captain Clegg. Pirate trial is a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I'd hate to be a public defender there. (laughs) Now the film flashes forward to 1792, and uh, we're in this small coastal village of Dimchurch. We're in the middle of Sunday services. We see Peter Cushing leading the... um, the congregation on uh, singing some some hymns. I think you jumped ahead a little bit. We're actually taken out into the marsh to start with, aren't we? Yeah, we oh, got to see yes. the frightened man and the, and the <laughs> phantoms of Romney Marsh. I, I completely forgot uh, about uh, Mr. Ketch. Sorry, Mr. Ketch. Uh, we are brought into the moors, and we are met. Uh, we see Tom Ketch. We don't know his name, but he's a, a, an elderly man, and he's running frightening. He's frightened and running through the the marsh there. We also see our first shots of the phantoms, which look like skeletons riding on skeletal uh, horses, but you don't see their feet. Basically, they kind of glow in the dark riding through, and they're chasing him down. 
And this this guy's played by Sidney Bromley, who appeared in Disney's Dragon Slayer in 1981. And also Hammer's uh, Prehistoric Women. Mm-hmm. But uh, we see him, and at one, one point, the, the film is sped up just a little bit as he's kind of running right at the camera. And he stops right at the front of the camera with this frightened look on his face. And Tracy looks at me and says, I kind of expected him to say, it's. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those that are familiar with Monty Python and the uh, Flying Circus television show will will get that reference. But the uh, the night creatures, uh, the phantoms of the marsh, end up surrounding him. We get a better look at them as their skeleton form. Mr. Ketch then kind of falls over having a heart attack or just dying of fright falling back into the marsh itself. And then we go singing with Peter, with Peter Cushing in church. <laughs> So, yes, we have uh, Dr. Bliss and his congregation there singing hymns. But what I thought was interesting at the same time, there's a lookout on the top of the church, which you see a couple times. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, watching this first time, why does a church need a lookout? But it becomes clear because a group of Navy men pull up in the marsh on longboats and march into town. And there's actually a little kid who spots them first. He seems to be associated with the lookout because he runs out into a field and starts waving a white handkerchief, and that's picked up by the lookout on top of the church. Who then signals in inside the church uh, by pulling on a rope that moves some background stuff that certain people see, including Mr. Mips, who then all make their way out of the service while the it's still going on, in which I thought was a kind of a an unusual giveaway here early on because just before that uh, dr bliss has chastised the group for not singing one hymn with enough uh feeling because he says you guys are taking for granted everything that you've got yeah he was kind of a hard ass in this scene and then (laughs) these people get up and leave right in the middle of the singing and he doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. i felt self-conscious for them (laughs) (laughs) but we see them um enter through some back tunnels into Mr. Mips's coffin-making shop. And there's a whole bunch of coffins in there. And the coffins, they open them up, and we see that they're full of brandy and wine and different uh, spirits, and not the dead people kind of spirits that you would normally find in a coffin. (laughs) So this gives us the clue that there's something going on in this town that just might not be legal, and that would explain why the Navy men are appearing. Now, we had a... An opening narration bit, like at the very beginning, that kind of implied there might be something going on here. But yeah, you're right, with the booze and the coffins. Hmm. Hmm. We also have a quick uh, exchange inside of the church service between Oliver Reed's character, the squire's son, and Imogene, who is sitting there with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rash. Rush. I keep wanting to call him Rash because it sounded like that's what they were calling him in the film. Yeah, it was the accent. The- the accent, but Mr. 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 and Mrs. Rush, there was a knowing glance between them across the aisle, setting up a little bit of interaction between those two characters. And when this, I mean, did you get the impression that she was actually his daughter at that point? Yes. Yeah. yeah it, turn, it turns to find out that uh, she is the ward of them, basically. They're, they're right. uh, foster parents or whatever you want to say in, the, in, in that time frame. But uh, she works in their, their bar as a serving wench. The Navy guys march their way into town finally, and they head to the, uh, to the bar. Well, they go to the church first. No, they first go to the bar. Oh, okay. They split up. They send most of the bosun takes most of the men to the bar because that's, you know, if you're going to have illegal 
alcohol, that's probably where it would be. And they end up tearing up the bar quite a bit, tearing the wainscoting off the wall, trying to find where the uh, illegal booze is hidden. Mr. and Mrs. Rash and Imogene have made it back there. They're one of the people that left the church service. They end up tearing the place apart looking for illegal booze. They end up finding a secret trap door into the basement, which uh, Mr. Mips and Mr. Rash are saying it's just... (laughs) you know, storage area down there. There's nothing down there. So they end, end up all going down there, and there's these great-looking old barrels, huge barrels, like six feet tall down there. One of my favorite moments, and I think it was Michael Ripper, actually, it was a Michael Ripper line, but the captain, after they found the trap door in the floor, when he calls him in here and says, what is this? He says, well, it's a hole in the floor. <laughs> kind of like, what do you expect? What do you think it is? <laughs> yeah, it uh, sounds like something smart-ass like I would say. So that's why you like Michael Ripper's character so much. You identified with him, Scott. <laughs> you did forget um, a very important little hint here. They were The Navy men were able to find the hidden uh, trap door because they had a bloodhound of sorts. Yes, they a had... A human bloodhound. Yes, they had the mulatto from the earlier scene that had been abandoned on the island, it turns out uh, that this Navy group had been trailing Captain Clegg for years. And when the Captain Clegg's men left their prisoner on the island, they went and rescued him. So he was with him, obviously can't talk because he doesn't have his tongue, but he was literally down on all fours being a bloodhound, sniffing around looking for the illegal booze. And he's the one that uh, actually finds where this trap door is. So they go down to the trap door, they see these big uh, wooden barrels, and the the bosun basically says, so what's, you know, is this where the the illegal booze is? And they say, no, it's, what is it, paint? Varnish. Varnish, thank you. And of course they don't believe that, so they they bust it open enough so they could could get uh, some of the liquid to come out and they taste it and it turns out to be varnish. Well, this is again, Michael Ripper's just got this smug like, (laughs) told you it was varnish you know kind of <laughs> like like casey was saying he's like what did you expect to find we told you what was yeah yeah it was just uh michael ripper throughout this this whole sequence of scenes and everything that was is what makes him stand out in this movie i think because his delivery on all of these smart ass lines is just perfect well great i mean he's easily the i mean we love peter cushing we're all on team peter here you know we're team cushing to the end but this is ripper's movie man it really is well while this is all going on uh, captain collier shows up at the church service while they're still singing, and he walks in right in the middle of the aisle. Dr. Bliss looks at him and says, um, you know, you're welcome to join our service, but here in the, the house of the Lord, please take off your hat. And Captain Collier just looks him dead in the eye and says, I'm here. I'm not here on the Lord's business. I'm here on the king's business, and I'll leave my hat on. Oh, yeah. So good. <laughs> yes. that that I love that scene. <laughs> He's there to tell everybody that you know what they're they're looking for this illegal booze back at the bar in the cellar. The Navy men go back up to the top of the bar at the same time. Now, Mister Rash opens up that case and we find that it's got a false front on it, the one that had the varnish in it, revealing a secret passageway that takes them to Mister Mips' uh, coffin maker shop, where all of the men are hastily trying to uh, take out all of the the booze out of the coffins and mr rash is telling them that we need to bust it open and pour it out and get, you know let's get rid of it because the navy men are here the bosun then is talking to mr mips and says that is it the bosun at this time or does captain collier come back that they were wanting to talk to uh they wanted to talk to mr ketch 
I'm not. I don't remember who was the first person he brought it up to, but he does eventually get led to catch by Mips. Yes, oh, right. thank you to him. Come yeah. on over here. Yeah, it, but it was Captain Collier that was bringing it up, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. So Captain Collier and Mister Mips then show up at the coffin shop. Well, the the guys hide in the back that are unloading all the booze, and uh, he says, "Yes, Mister Kitch, uh, Mister Catch is here," and they pulls up the shroud and you see the frozen in terror dead eyes of Mr. Ketch in his coffin. Obviously can't answer any of uh, Captain Collier's questions. Captain Collier leaves and uh, Mr. Rash comes out and kind of berates um, Mr. Mips for bringing the, the military here to where we're trying to get rid of all this booze. Dr. Bliss comes out through the uh, the secret passageway and then just really tears into Mr. Rash, basically saying, you know, why are you doing all this? Who put you in charge? Why are you destroying all this the booze? We have contacts that we need to sell this to let's get it all packed up we're still going to do it even though the the military's here in town he then gives the order to make sure that there is no place for the military to stay in town which didn't go far no it, it did not go too far yeah the squire's kind of oblivious to all that and <laughs> well the squire invites captain collier for dinner actually he invites uh, dr bliss to dinner first and then captain collier has some questions for the squire so he invites the squire to come to dinner at the uh, at the end later the evening during the dinner uh, the captain is looking for some still looking for some place for his sailors to bed down for the night and the squire says well i've got a barn or there's a barn near me that you guys can stay in which then as soon as that happens Dr. Bliss fakes spilling his wine. <laughs> it was pretty obvious. To, Very <laughs> obvious. I was like, really, Peter? No, you, you can do subtle better than that, can't you? So he gets, he gets out of there to plan for the fact that the Navy men were still going to be in town. He's got to set up alternate plans because they, they have plans to go at midnight to deliver this booze that they've got. When he, when he leaves the back room where the dinner's taking place at the end, there's where all the Navy men are that are drinking. They're also tormenting the the mulatto by teasing him trying to get him to sing and dance for his his booze he sees dr bliss and just goes irate and, and attacks him well there's a also that look would. on cushing's face oh yes cushing sees mm-hmm. him first and it's there's a a terrified look on his face like i thought he was dead and so he he gets attacked oh yeah i love that scene I just I love the interaction, the the nonverbal interaction between the mulatto and Bliss. Yeah, I have to give Milton Reed a lot of credit. I mean, he for the limited role he was in, he really just went all in on his character. The way he's able to convey emotions without speaking was was pretty well done. Sometimes I wish we were that well spoken here on 1951 Down Place. <laughs> <laughs> Now, when this scene happens, when you're watching the film, are they supposed to have the fact that Peter Cushing is Captain Clegg as a major reveal later in the film? You know, and I was wondering if we were going to talk about this. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd have to look at some of the press material and all that. Some of the posters and some of the press book photos that I've seen do show Cushing and Alan fighting. Like, like physically in each other's face, as opposed to just the kind of the, sp- the verbal sparring that we see on the film. So I don't know if it was billed that way. I'd have to go back, maybe watch a trailer and see, but I don't know. Because it, that, that's a pretty big, it's not a very subtle hint or at is, this point. Or was that supposed to be the reveal right there? 
I would say no, because there is a scene later where you see Dr. Bliss remove a mask and there is some like triumphant music that plays like this is supposed to be the reveal. There is that moment too. I, I don't know if that was supposed to be the reveal though, either that seemed less about the reveal and more about at least less about a reveal for us and more about the character embracing it, you know, for himself. I don't know. I obviously as a modern audience, we know looking at it now, but I don't know if it was, I don't know. The the books were popular. So maybe people just kind of knew going into it. With the mask removal, I thought that was an indicator that explained the night creatures. Yeah. But they, they had already revealed the night creatures because, you know, right before that you see them rescuing Oliver Reed's character. But you don't necessarily know that Dr. Bliss is a part of that. How do you not know that? And before that, though, too, we see the reveal about who's in the Scarecrow suit, and it's not Dr. Bliss. So I don't know. As a modern audience, this one's really tough to look at as a modern viewer and not know. That yeah, and that since it's not being as subtle as a lot of film, I mean, there's a lot of films of this area era that do subtle little hints that you may not catch up on or catch up with the first time you watch the film. But if you rewatch it, yeah, like how did I miss this? Which you know the full story. This one, I don't think they were really trying to hide who everybody was, but I don't know for that for a fact. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems less about having the moments of reveal. And, and more about we we already kind of know that he's i don't know it's tough this one didn't handle it didn't age as well in that regard i i don't think it makes the movie any worse it's just tough to say well later later on that evening um the navy men uh, the you know they're leaving the the dinner the navy men go back to the to the barn to go to sleep we've got mr mips Mr. Rash and the rest of the uh, men, they're loading up all of the booze into the coffins and loading them onto the, the hearses, basically, to take them out. The Navy men are suspecting something, so they decide that the, they're going to send them off on a wild goose chase. So they we've got Captain Collier and Dr. Bliss walking back to their respective homes late at night, and this guy comes screaming out of the darkness saying that the phantoms of the marsh have have been seen and scared him earlier in the, at the evening. They've told um, Captain Collier all about the phantoms. Of course, he doesn't quite believe that they're supernatural beings. He, he thinks that has something to do with the smuggling that's been going on in the area. So he wants to investigate them. So as soon as this guy comes out of the darkness seeing, saying that he's seen them, he then calls for his bosun to, to get everybody mobilized. We're going to go out into the marsh and find these people. So he follows the crazy, scared guy off into into the marsh, and he's he's actually set off as a decoy because then Dr. Bliss has everybody else start loading up all of the, all the booze and everything to take it out to the meeting place in the opposite direction. And this is the scene where the, the Navy guys march right by Mr. Mips's store where they're loading up everything. And uh, they all hide, and Mr. Mips says, he sees them, and the, the uh, Captain Collier says, what are you doing out so late? And he says, well, I'm just doing my job, getting ready for the next day. And he says, if you guys are going to march out and meet up with the Phantoms, then you're just going to increase my business or something. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like that. It's a great little moment, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. It really is. And, uh, you know, Mr. Mips comes back in and... and Mr. Rash says, you know, with your tongue wangling, you're going to have us all hanging. (laughs) (laughs) The Navy guys, they're off going in the wrong direction. Everybody then gets into the... the hearses they take the stuff out to this old windmill 
the guy who was scared is no longer scared anymore, which then Mr. Collier or Captain Collier believes that he's now being taken on a wild goose chase. Yeah. And they then grab the, the guy by both ears, two guys on either side of him, and they threaten to cut his ears off unless he tells them what's what's really going on and where the, where his, the smugglers are. So he starts taking him towards where the windmill is, where the meeting place is. And this is the first time that we uh, we start, well, we saw the, the scarecrow early on uh, in the first Marsh scene, but now we see the scarecrow and we see the, the eyes watching them through the, the gourd. It's The head is basically a gourd with eyes cut out of it. So we see the, the human eyes behind it watching them. But it appears to be just a literal scarecrow. It's standing still out in the middle of a field. But one of the Navy guys says, didn't we just see that scarecrow about a half a mile the other side when we started our walk? And they're like, well, it's probably just, you know, something all the farmers do around here. <laughs> but the, the scarecrow actually, you know, starts waggling his hand to try to give a heads up to Mr. Mips and his crew that uh, somebody's coming. The The scared guy had given him enough time for the, the rest of the team to have their transaction done and they get the, the booze taken away. The Navy guys make it to the windmill and find it empty. They, they come out and Captain Collier sees that same scarecrow out there and he thinks he sees it move. From a, from a quite a bit of a distance, he shoots the scarecrow. Because that's what you do when you see a moving scarecrow. Shoot it. Well, if you're in a creepy marsh and you see a scarecrow move, I and I had a gun, I probably would shoot it too. <laughs> hey, that's a nice change, though, because by today's standards, usually a captain sees something suspicious like that, and they're going to stand and talk about it. They're going to look at it for a while. They're going to analyze it, give them a chance to get away and whatnot. He just pulled the gun and shot and asked questions later. That was pretty. Uh, that was kind of refreshing. <laughs> so they tear off and run across the field towards the scarecrow scared guy that's been with them the whole time takes this opportunity to head off the other direction into the woods by the time that the the crew gets to the scarecrow they find it just a scarecrow but they could see where it would, had been shot in the arm because there was blood there now i think captain collier suspected a certain person was in that scarecrow because the next morning they're marching back into into the town, and Dr. Bliss is awake because he sees him walk by. He throws open the, the window and invites Captain Collier in for breakfast. Very cheerful. Good morning. Yes. Would you like to join me in breakfast? What's roasted kidneys and something and else? And bacon. And sounded uh, good. <laughs> so Captain Collier comes in the house. He also sees a pair of boots that are covered in mud. So I, at this point, I think he's suspecting Dr. Bliss was out in the marshes last night. So he wants to see Dr. Bliss's arm before he's going to, to do anything. So Bliss, because Bliss is, the whole time he's holding his arm funny. He's he's kind of doing a Napoleon type of thing where he's got his arm in his shirt. So it's, it's leading you to believe that there's something wrong with his arm as well. Because if I remember correctly, you did not see Dr. Bliss out at the No, windmill. he was not out at the windmill. You don't see him any at any point during the, the whole evening. You know, after the whole events of the, the transaction of the smuggling going on. Well, and when Collier first goes into the home, too, he finds the muddy boots at the doorstep. Yep. So there's another misdirection or maybe intentional direction of who's who here. He finally gets to see Dr. Bliss's arm, finds nothing. Now, one other thing that happened the night before that I forgot to mention, when the Navy marched off into the, into the marsh, they left one guy, Pegleg, to watch the mulatto. The peg leg guy hears something strange after the, everybody leaves because Dr. Bliss, when the, the people go out to take the booze out into the windmill, 
he basically dismisses Mr. Rash, says, we don't trust you, you go home. When the, everybody leaves, the peg leg guy hears that, and he goes out to see what's going on. Well, Mr. Rash sees that, and he comes up behind and kills peg leg with a, with a knife to the chest. He starts to drag him back to the barn, and he gets frightened by the mulatto, so he just kind of dumps the body and takes off. Well, the mulatto character crawls over to the peg leg who has the keys to the um, the shackles that the mulatto is wearing. So he is able to free himself and leave. So back to the next morning when Dr. Captain Collier is looking at Dr. Bliss's arms, he gets interrupted by the bosun saying, come quick, we've got a problem. So they leave. And then the squire's son happens to also uh, be there. He's coming down the steps and we find out that he's the one that has has been shot in the arm. This is Oliver Reed's character. And uh, Dr. Bliss basically tells him that he also needs to clean his boots. So this is the first time that we know that uh, Harry Cobtree, the squire's son, is also involved in all this. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. We also had found out earlier that he wants to be involved with Imogene because there is a scene at the bar that uh, Imogene is called to go into the back to get another thing of ale. The squire's son is there. To you know, Harry's there, and he's he's promised that he'll always love Imogene. And he's saying, or she's saying, well, let's just go away. And uh, Harry's saying that he can't he can't just leave right now. So that sets up the the romantic element of the film between Reed and uh, Romaine. So how much farther do we want to go in the film? Do we want to spoil the ending of the film? Well, we were kind of dancing around it anyway. There's this big reveal at the end, and, and I think modern audiences now know. Cushing is Clegg. Clegg is Cushing. He's also Bliss and or anybody else he wants to be, really, I suppose. But <laughs> uh, he is our Captain Clegg, the leader of our night creatures in this film. And, I mean, I love him for it, but like I said, I think Michael Ripper is the, the, the standout here. Yeah. Uh, I definitely, I liked Michael Ripper's character a lot, and I liked Oliver Reed's character a lot in this film. And I know earlier you said that we are Peter Cushing to the end, but he was probably the weakest part in this film for me. I would disagree with you 100%, but I want to hear your reasons as to why. <laughs> Honestly, I think it has to do with a lot that I had just watched Dr. Sin, and I like Patrick McGowan quite a bit. Okay, so it's not Peter Cushing's fault at all, then. It's yours. No. (laughs) It's Disney's. It's Disney's fault. One of the things I liked about Dr. Sin quite a bit (laughs) is how Patrick McGowan was able to go from the peaceful, loving um, vicar to the evil pirate scarecrow, whatever he is, and turn it on and off like a light switch. Ah. I liked Peter Cushing when he was playing the vicar. When he was playing Dr. Bliss, I thought he was great. He did not sell me as a bloodthirsty pirate. Yeah. I'm going to go, Derek, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to side with uh, Scott on this one. Not that I thought Peter Cushing was like the, the my least favorite in this, ep- in this movie or anything like that, because I did like him as the vicar and everything. But Baguin played the better swashbuckler type character in Dr. Sin, I think, than they let Peter Cushing play here. Because to me, it felt like we were always on the verge of going full out swashbuckling with the pirate theme and everything like that, that we never quite crossed that line. Whereas I think we saw a better side of adventuring and everything from Patrick McGoon in the same character. And, and really, you know, my, my rousing Scott earlier aside, you know, it's just really trying to have a conversation about it more than anything else. Uh, I do think Patrick McGoon is better at turning it off and on, off and on. And I think that goes back to the black and white, 
kind of Disney approach to a lot of their filmmaking. You're either good or you're evil. You're never both at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do feel like Cushing did that better in this, especially when we start to see the little breaks between the vicar and Clegg. Um, you know, for example, when they, the, the man leads Collier and his men out into the marshes on their wild goose chase, as Clegg walks away or as, as Bliss walks away, he kind of throws his head back a little bit in this silent laugh as he walks off. I love that moment. Yes. Um, and I do agree that he's much better as the vicar. And I feel like if I were to try to go in and justify this or explain this in terms of the story, it feels to me like he spends more time as the vicar in this town that he's put a lot of the swashbuckling pirating behind him. Yeah, he still runs a smuggling operation. He started to put down some roots. And I feel like maybe some of the pirating is behind him now. Now, when he has to re-embrace that, to protect his own and protect his operation and his men and that sort of thing at the end. I like the blending of the two. I think there's a nice coming together. I do think it might be about five years too late for Cushing because he didn't do a lot of his own stunts. He's a little bit older in this, and I would have liked to see him tackle this a little bit younger. Me too. Yeah. Which I think we were kind of, I think you were kind of implying that at the very beginning when you're talking about his age, that he might just be a touch too old to be doing a lot of the swashbuckling. All I know is if I had a time machine, I would love to go back and take uh, Magoon and put him in this film. I would love mm. to see him and Michael Ripper work together. Well, if you had yeah. a time machine, why don't you just go back and get Peter Cushing from 1955 and have him do it then? That just shows you how much I liked Patrick McGowan's performance. Mm. We have to break up then because Peter Cushing can do no wrong. (laughs) As I said, as as I said earlier, that it's probably been cut because we were talking about another film. (laughs) This might be my last appearance on 1951 Downplays. I like Patrick McGowan in that he is a great good guy playing as a villain. I like Cushing in this and that he's a great villain trying his best to be a good guy. And I think that's harder. And so my my vote would go toward Cushing if I have to pick one over the other. Because I feel like he's acting harder. He's working harder. It's not as easy. You know what I mean? That's where I'd come from on this. I think Magoon was great. And I thought Dr. Sin was pretty intense. If I had to pick one movie over the other, though, I'd pick this one. And I think Cushing is a big part of it. That said, Ripper's amazing. <laughs> Ripper is just the key to this film. His mips, hands down. Oh, he is the highlight of this film. For me, if for me though, when it comes down to the actual uh, cap, the vicar character in both movies, I just think Magoon brings back brings forth elements of his shady past better than uh, Cushing does. He's I, Cushing's too straight to highlight to make it believable that he used to be this ruthless pirate. You know that the that this captain had dedicated half his life to chasing around across the seas and everything. I can believe that with McGowan, but that with Cushing, it's just not there. I could see Cushing being more of a, for lack of a better term, a business-like pirate. Maybe he had been a merchant that for some reason had been turned to piracy, and the only really vicious, bloodthirsty thing he did you know, to the mulatto was because of what the mulatto did to his wife. So maybe you know, Cushing was not necessarily a bloodthirsty pirate per se, but that one bloodthirsty act was inspired by, you know, truly horrible personal effect. Because I thought right. I liked Cushing in the smuggling role when he was in charge. You know, he that was very businesslike. That was, you know, he was very much in charge. And that was a good contrast with the vicar. Although even the vicar was a little bit badass in that first um, church scene where he's kind of castigating everyone. Okay, we're going to sing this hymn again because you don't sound thankful enough. <laughs> 
Well, see, and part of it for me is because we don't actually see Cushing involved in the action of a whole lot in this uh, movie. We see him show up a couple times in Barking Orders, but you and you see one shot of him where he opens his eyes and the scarecrow mask, and that's it. Whereas in Doctor Sin with Magoon, you see him. You've you saw him in, involved in a lot of the action, and with that scene with the there's more scenes of him being his bad guy side, his underground side, I guess you call it. Whereas Cushing, you only you only see his cover primarily throughout the movie, which is as the vicar. So there's a difference there. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, it sounds like this movie would have benefited, at least in the eyes of three out of the four people on this podcast, if we had seen Peter Cushing in the scene directly when the mulatto is being left out after failing pirate tarot, or if you would have seen Clegg as or Cushing as Clegg involved in running catch down in the marshes and leading to his death. Yeah, that there wasn't enough of Cushing on screen doing the dastardly deeds himself directly. Yeah, I am I, is that is that the takeaway here? Well, you that could, is for me. Yeah, you could do that, or you could also have him be the pirate that he was, but now he's put down his roots, like you said, and play it like he's playing it. But he is an unwilling partner to the smuggling. Put Mister Rash in charge because he's got his daughter, and he's holding his daughter behind the scenes forcing Dr. Bliss to still do the pirate kind of stuff, the smuggling. And then the way Cushing played it would have made more sense. Because I got the impression every time he was in the smuggling thing, he wasn't real comfortable there. You know, and I was about to say that. I'm wondering if that might have been part of it. You know, the smuggling, it was less about good and this was a good thing or a bad thing or we're breaking the law. It was just, this is now what my business is. Mm Mm-hmm. And where the frustration in his part comes from is when his business doesn't work anymore, when Rash starts getting out of line or when Ketch is going to reveal something. And that's where the struggle is. And that's why it's like, oh, God, now i got to deal with this, you know? And there was also much less of the sense of what Bliss was doing with the proceeds of the smuggling. That isn't really brought out until the very, very, very end of the film. Whereas in Dr. Sin, you know, Dr. Sin's character, the the Robin Hood aspect is played up a whole lot more. Which I really didn't need the Robin Hood. I mean, it's again, Disney. I feel I'm like, not surprised. Yeah. I was going to say, that sounds like a, a Disney affectation. Well, in the original book, Tracy, <laughs> what was his motivation for doing the smuggling? It was mostly to help the community to deal with the extremely high taxes that the king was imposing. So that's not necessarily a Disney thing. They just brought that out more, but it was in the original source material. Well, and to be clear, when I say that, I, I don't mean that as an insult or a knock. Mm-hmm. I love a lot of Disney stuff. You guys, I hope everybody knows that. I would easily watch this one again over watching Dr. Sin. I think it's pretty obvious <laughs> that I'm in the minority here. Is that right? Yeah. For me, I, I would watch Dr. Sin again. Yeah. And I, I honestly, after, not to say I didn't enjoy Night Creatures, but I think I just like the, I like seeing more of the action adventure side in Dr. Sin. See, I feel like this one has more because there's more going on beneath the surface. It's more subtle and I don't need that because I, I can bring that to the table. Uh, in terms of comparis- further comparisons between this and the Disney film, and I suspect I know where this is going to go. The Phantoms in this movie versus the Phantoms in the Disney film. I think the Phantoms that's, here a- were more effective, visually effective, and they... 
although for a film titled Night Creatures, they didn't get nearly as much screen time as I was expecting. In this film, it seemed like less of the townspeople were really aware of what was going, what they were. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Doctor Sin film, it seems like everybody knew. Oh yeah, those are the the Marsh Phantoms, quote unquote. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I, while I did like the masks that they had in Doctor Sin, I think the the supernatural element they were going for here in Captain Clegg, I think, was was more fun. It was a little more creepy. Felt more like a hammer touch. Although, although the glow in the dark paint elements, those are from that's from the original source material as well. They you know they yeah. cite painting their costumes and the horses up with this white phosphorus. For me. I- I'd almost call it a draw. I liked the uh, night creatures from a distance, but when they were up close to them, it looked it didn't look very good. As for Doctor Sin, I I loved the masks, especially is it Hellsprite? That's is that the one with the the, the bird Kulu mask? The Kulu was the bird, it, right? It, and Hellsprite was the I liked Hellsprite and, and Kulu both, um, but there was only three masks, and uh, you know the rest of them were just wore bandanas over their face. So I, I liked the masks in Doctor Sin. I liked the long shots of the night creatures in Night Creatures. I prefer the Night Creatures look um, because it does make it more supernatural, and I want supernatural in my stories. In Doctor Sin, it's clearly just a bunch of hoodlums, and, <laughs> especially and, with the bandanas. Yeah. Yes. Whereas I want the the glowy, spooky, cover the horses and men in highway sign paint, which is basically what it was to make them glow and and call it good. I liked it, and I, and I always like it when there's a monstrous horse on screen. So having the horses look all spooky too, sign me up. Yeah, and I really liked the way they were. I enjoyed the way they were selling the idea of them being marsh phantoms instead of just um, rebels running around in masks. I th- I like that aspect of the story better too. Yeah. Are there any other points of comparison we want to make between this film and the other one? We didn't really do that much on Disney Indiana, so I didn't know if there's anything you wanted to bring up now that we've seen both films. I thought the romantic element of the plot fit in a lot better in Night Creatures than it did in Dr. Sin. It, it was a more integral part of the plot, in my opinion. Well, but I can it, barely remember the romance in Dr. Sin, so I wonder if that, yeah. <laughs> if that speaks to that. Yeah, don't you remember the, the squire's daughter falling in love with... Oh, that's the right. The lieutenant, yep. Yeah. Like I said, I can barely remember it, but you're right, yeah. I mean, it, it did become an important part of the plot in Dr. Sin because the lieutenant then had to kind of prove himself to her. Now, when we did the show on Disney Indiana, we talked about the Dr. Sin being a feature film version of a three-part miniseries have you guys gone back and watched the tv miniseries not yet we wanted Uh, to wait until we'd had a chance to talk about both both movies here so we wouldn't we we wanted to compare movie to movie yeah gotcha i was gonna ask you if the romance in dr sin was a little bit more fleshed out you'll have to miniseries you'll have to listen to disney indiana when we talk about well tracy and i are going to talk about the full miniseries and see i was setting that up as an opening there so there you go plug Go back and listen to the Indiana if you haven't already done so. Uh, one other comparison. What do you think of the endings and what happens to the main character? I like the finality of how they uh, ended here in Captain Clegg to watch him. We watched the full course of it, of him actually getting laid in the ground. I thought that was pretty effective. Boiler! <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, we know. I think that's pretty much a given at this point. Yeah. I, I love the scene where Mr. Mips is carrying Dr. Bliss, Captain Clegg, back to the graveyard. I just... The, the way Michael Ripper carries himself. Yeah, he looks absolutely stricken. And he also looks like he's carrying a hero, and he knows it. Yeah. I, I really like the ending of the film. 
Oh, yeah. It's easily the best payoff between the two. And Ripper, if it was, if it was anybody but Ripper, I think it would be hard to, to say that because Ripper sells it so much. But even the, the events that lead up to that, you know, to why he, you know, Clegg has to be carried back to the graveyard, even the events that lead up to that are, are still pretty stunning for me. You know, that Clegg kind of sacrif- you know, sacrifices himself and all that. I just love it. So good. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think Night Creatures, the, the film ended stronger than Dr. Sin. Dr. Sin felt like it was an introduction to an ongoing series. For the yeah. further adventures of Dr. Sin, tune in next week. <laughs> same <laughs> Sin channel, same Sin time. <laughs> no, I agree. I The Dr. Sin definitely sounded like something that, you know, they may have more TV movies on the wonderful world of Disney and in a couple of weeks with another adventure of Dr. Sin. They, they, yeah. they kept him alive. And they sent send a lot of the people back to the New World for characters that they didn't need. The Night Creatures, this was a finale there. You're not going to have any more further adventures of Captain Clegg. They could do a prequel, which I would love to actually see a prequel, as we, as we mentioned earlier. But I think it would have been really tough to do after 62, because of some of the issues that we pointed out with Peter Cushing's age, selling him as a swashbuckling pirate might have been difficult. Yeah, I I would like to have seen if we're if they're doing prequels, what caused him to give up being a pirate and become a vicar? I mean, was that the scene that the mulatto caused? I mean, was that his breaking point? Well, he does. There is a line in there where the English government had actually hired Captain Clegg to bring somebody to London, and I don't remember who. But then they arrested him on site when he got on on the shore. That's true. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, Thorndike ended the series effectively with the first book and only went back to, I mean, because the same thing happens, you know, Clegg dies. So they had to go back and do some prequels if they're going to do any more books. So, I mean, if they had done more movies, that's exactly what they would have had to have done. Or maybe Oliver Reed could have taken up the role. I don't know. Yep. He Make has- him a legacy hero, you know, Batman and Robin, or not Batman and Robin, but <laughs> anyway. Dr. Bliss, what, but- Dr. Bliss too, more blissful. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. So are you guys going to alter your top five for Night Creatures? Not me. No. I mean, I, I love this movie a lot more than you guys do, but uh, no, it's not in the top five. I think it's, in my opinion, and I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point, I think it's one of Cushing's uh, best performances, but no, it's not in the top five films. As I said over on Disney Indiana, if Dr. Sin was a Hammer film, it would be in my top five, but uh, this one, no, I would not t- put in my top five. How about for your uh, favorite Oliver Reed hammer role? This or Paranoiac? Paranoiac. I like Reed in this one because I feel like he's trying harder. I think Oliver Reed was a drunk. (laughs) So with Paranoiac, all they had to do was bring him to set and let him go. Uh, and, and, And that's not to say he didn't do a good job. I mean, there are plenty of actors even today who pretty much play themselves on screen and do it very well. I think in this one he had to try harder, and I love the scenes between him and Cushing. Whereas in Paranoiac, and pretty much anything post this, Oliver Reed doesn't let anybody else share the screen with him. He dominates everything. Whereas in this one he is a a team player and is interested in not just acting, but reacting. So I like him better in this as an actor because I feel like he's actually showing what he can do as an actor as opposed to an alcoholic. (laughs) Well, in in this film, for me, I think he's overshadowed by Ripper and Allen and Cushing. And Reed is, while he I like him in this film a lot, don't get me wrong, but he's fourth build. And he doesn't sure. have that big a role in this film. 
other than the love interest of Imogene. You don't and being shot in the arm. I mean, there's there's long parts of this film he's not in. The, he's de- there's he's definitely not uh, a major player in this one. But for me, he blended in so well into this role that it was easy to forget that he was the lead in Paranoiac the next year. That it was the same people. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize those two films came so close together. Oh. Maybe this is the film that made him start drinking. <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> I think he came out of the womb. <laughs> and 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 to be totally honest, one of my favorite Oliver Reed roles isn't even a Hammer film. So it's Condor Man, right? Sting Two. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm being all honest. I love Sting Two, and I love his role in it. And he doesn't drink in that one. Well, just a little bit, but he's not drunk. I just think he has more to do on this one. He gets more. To, he gets to do more. He gets to actually act and share the screen with people, and you know, and, and show why he is such a good actor when he wants to be. He fits yeah. much better into the ensemble here than some of the other roles I've seen him in. Mm-hmm. Although he's pretty good in Condor Man. <laughs> Quite honestly, I've not seen Condor Man, so uh, we need to fix that. <laughs> Even though I do now have the uh, the theme song because it is in the Disney Infinity video game. Well, it's pretty easy to get your hands on this movie. It's available on a couple of different packs, I believe. Uh, it's pretty easily available here in the States as well, so it's not like you have to try real hard to get your hands on it. I would recommend it, and I believe the set that it's in, isn't Paranoiac in that set? Yes, it is. So Yeah, and it's a lot easier to find this film than uh, Dr. Sin. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> So, Scott, would you still recommend seeing Captain Clegg? Oh, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I would definitely recommend seeing it. But I'm, I'm obviously not as high on it as other voices on this podcast. That's okay. Not everybody can be right all the time. <laughs> it's big of you to admit that. Asshole. <laughs> uh, um. <laughs> Scott, once again, is channeling his inner Mr. Mips. Mm-hmm. So did Scott somehow become the Michael Ripper of this of this podcast, Casey? Is that I think Scott's always been our Michael Ripper. <laughs> That's the nicest thing you guys have ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we don't have any feedback, do we? That is correct. No feedback. So next month on 1951 Down Place, uh, we have more swashbuckling, sort of. You know, it's funny. We keep saying swashbuckling, but there's really no boat-on-boat action here. There's no buckles to be swashed, really. But we have some more swashbuckling action because we're going to go to Sherwood Forest for uh, for Disney's, <laughs> for Hammer's <laughs> Sword of Sherwood Forest, starring Peter Cushing as the Sheriff of Nottingham. And I believe, Oliver, is Oliver reading that movie? I can't remember. He I believe well be. so. Yeah, yeah, I think he is. I've never seen it, so this will be a first for me. This is from 1960, and I'm looking, Oliver Reed is Lord Melton in the film. That's right. Uh, and Richard Green, who had played Robin Hood on television, plays Robin Hood in this film. I'm excited to talk about it. I've seen this one before. I'll watch it again for the show. Uh, I like almost everything about that one. So can't wait to talk about it with you two. Tracy, thank you for hanging out with us here in the 1951 Down Place. I think Casey called it The Office. I was about to call it The Clubhouse. <laughs> Man Cave. The 1951 Down Place Man Cave. Thanks for allowing me to play along. I enjoyed the conversation and am looking forward to uh, maybe participating again sometime. I'm okay with that, I guess. When you cover The Vengeance of She. <laughs> yes yes sweet i found my substitute Uh, she's my substitute you gotta find your own (laughs) (laughs) do we want to say anything uh about last minute voting for the listener pick month before we sign out i was trying to give you that opening scott (laughs) (laughs) seeing as this episode will 
is supposed to go out on May 31st, which will be the last day to vote for the Listener Pick Month, which is the film that we're going to cover in July. As of this recording, leading by four votes is the four-sided triangle. Really? Yep. It has uh, It's four votes ahead of a tie for second between Rasputin the Mad Monk and the Hands of the Ripper. That just ain't right. Although, to be fair, Scott hasn't made a four-sided triangle joke in months, so maybe it's time. I'm... <laughs> I know I've come to terms with it that we're going to have to cover this film, and our joke now is going to be Vengeance of She, I think. Which means in two years we'll be talking about Vengeance of She. Yeah, Vengeance yep. of She Excellent. right now has uh, four votes, so if it gets a bunch more in the next week and a half. Yeah, but I see somebody who's voted at least twice. Oh, you do? Well, I've Probably seen Scott. there's multiple people. I have not voted yet, but there's there's some listeners that have voted for multiple films. Shame, shame. But yes, that will be our July episode. Awesome. So if you want to find that, you can search for 1951 Downplace over on Facebook, and it's a uh, right at the top of our Facebook page, the, the voting. If you would like to send us some feedback, uh, you can, first you can call us at area code 765-203-1951. Now, just a reminder, that phone will cut off at three minutes, so make sure that you know that before you call. Uh, the other option, you can send us email at podcast at 1951downplace.com. And if you have the ability to make your own MP3 file, you can make it any length you want and then send it to podcast at 1951downplace.com. If you have more than three minutes to say about a Hammer film or film that we've covered or a film that we're going to cover in the future, if you want to always comment on something that we're going to see that's on our schedule, We'd appreciate that as well. Scott and Tracy, what do you guys have coming up next on Disney Indiana since we might have some crossover listeners? Well, our next uh, episode, obviously, our last episode was the, the Dr. Sin episode. Well, coming up in June for us, uh, we're going to be looking um, at Maleficent, which is going to open on the 30th. Uh, Disney's Ooh. newest big film, and then uh, we're running a year-long segment once a month where we're going to we're covering items that uh, Disney had got to the planning stage, but they had never done, whether it be a movie or a theme park attraction or a television show. And uh, what we're going to talk about in the second episode in June is the Hunchback of Notre Dame musical. So that's what's coming up on Disney Indiana. And if you'd like to find out uh, more about that show, we're located at DisneyIndiana.com, or you can search for Disney Indiana in iTunes. We put out a show every other Sunday, and uh, we've been doing that for five and a half years. We're actually, in July, will be six years for that show. Wow. And we're getting ready to plan our upcoming Friends of the Magic trip, where we're going to Disneyland. Ooh. But that's not till August. And, of course, you can always find Casey over at his, I guess, home podcast, right? BloodyGoodHorror.com? Yep, BloodyGoodHorror.com. You can find me on Bloody Good Horror Podcast and the Instamatic that comes out a couple times a month. And that one's dedicated to Netflix uh, Instant Watch movies. And it's not just horror either. So my co-host Charlie and I are trying to make it uh, as eclectic as possible. So we're having fun. And that's still on the Bloody Good Horror feed, though, right? Yes, that is the same feed as the Bloody Good Horror Podcast. Awesome. And where can we find you, Derek? Well, right now I'm in my living room, or my dining room. I'm sorry. I, I'm just kind of hanging out, you know. Where can we find you on the <laughs> internet? <laughs> Do you have a credit card? Uh, you can find me at my other podcast, <laughs> uh, Monster Kid Radio, over at monsterkidradio.net, or iTunes, or Stitcher, Spreaker, or... Am I in Spreaker yet? I don't know. I'm all over. But yeah, monsterkidradio.net. And as of this recording, we will have just celebrated 100 episodes. So. And also was a runner-up for a Rondo Award. Congratulations. 
I, I wasn't yeah. gonna. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, Monster Kid Radio was on the ballot alongside uh, this show. Uh, again, thank you to everybody who both supported me on Monster Kid Radio and supported us here at 1951 Downplace. I guess uh, one thing's left to say. Just remember that Joni always loves Chachi. <laughs> it's been too long since we've mentioned that. <laughs> Got me hypnotized when you look at me.